welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Dellingpole. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I am bouncing up and down with excitement. You can see me literally bouncing up and down. I have tracked down none other than Patrick Wood, who I think probably is the guy who knows more than any anyone else in the world about the really terrifying subject on all our minds at the moment technocracy and the great reset uh am i right patrick it's your area of expertise it it is and if it's not an area of um phd quality uh scholarship today here's one thing that i have that most people don't and that's that i've been immersed in this and totally immersed in this for about 45 years so I've seen and I've been an eyewitness to a lot of things that have happened over the course of time. And at this point, this is the perspective, I think, that people really need to have if they want to understand it. You can't just look at a point in time and take a Polaroid picture and say, oh, I get it. You kind of have to understand the broader historical perspective. Yeah, that's I was I was shocked. I I, I was trying to decide which of your books to read. I, I, I think Technocracy Rising probably has the better title. Uh, I chose the more recent one, Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, which, I mean, if, if people are going to start out, which book should they read first? Well, <clears throat> it's, I flip-flop back and forth on this. I, you know, if you, wanna, if you have the time and you want to really get the whole picture initially, start with the first book it's more foundational the second book is a little bit more um taking the current situation and kind of connecting the dots together with what we see but there's enough overlap in in the content uh in the context of it that people will understand technocracy pretty well if they read the second book right i was the point i was going to make was i was very shocked when i was reading your book and i have to say I, I I read it sort of with my fingers half over my eyes um, because it's not comfortable. I, I tend to read in bed and it's not comfortable bedtime reading. It's it you you read it and you think, oh, my God, it's even it, it's not even worse than I thought. It's so much worse than I thought. And when I got to the bit where you said you've been writing about this for 45 years and I just thought, oh, my God, um, this is so entrenched now. How are we going to get out of it? We can come to the, we can come to, if there is any upside, we'll come to that at the end. You may, maybe you can offer me some crumbs of hope so I don't kill myself. But take me back to the origins of, of technocracy first, because it was, it started out as a crazy cult, didn't it, in the 1930s? Well, it did. And it wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't so much a cult in the sense that it was devised by very prominent engineers and scientists at Columbia University in New York City. And Columbia, by the way, is one of our most liberal, progressive colleges ever, or universities. You have a couple like it in Great Britain. I know that nothing much good has ever come out of Columbia University. And, and, but anyway, they, they were kind of the name, the go-to uh, progressive scholarship, et cetera. And during the heat of the Great Depression, these scientists and engineers got together and they thought, you know, we've got a problem here. Capitalism looks like it's dead. 
soup lines, um, you know, really uh, societal upheaval. And they figured that this was an engineering problem. So they set about creating an alternative economic system um, that wasn't a price-based economic system, not based on free market economics. It was based on resource uh, allocation, resource um, administration, and it was to be controlled by energy. In other words, whereas in a price-based economic system, money is the, the fluid, the, the lifeblood of the economic system. To their system, they proposed that energy would be the lifeblood of the system. It would be the, the monetary accounting system, if you will. But it wasn't price-based. They simply wanted to allocate goods and services according to the amount of energy that went into them and it, that it consumed. It was called technocracy. And <clears throat> it got kicked out of Columbia University after about a year. And the original leaders, founders, whatever, they set out on their own, created an organization called Technocracy Incorporated. It was a membership organization. And uh, they found popularity all across North America, um, across the, especially in the West and United States, but also in Canada. It was huge in Canada. And uh, every province had its own leader of t the technocracy movement. And then there was one uh, overlord uh, in Canada that kind of oversaw the entire thing. Um, and uh, in Canada, during World War II, there was enough confusion over what this organization was that the Canadian government banned Technocracy Inc. in Canada because it looked too much like the Nazi Party in Germany that was rising up at the time. So they they had a two year cool off period where in Canada they had to kind of go underground. Uh, they originally uh, ultimately got that that lifted and uh, you know went back to operation again. We'll, we'll get back to the Canadian movement a little bit later, maybe. But that's yeah. kind of where this started. It was an economic system to replace capitalism and free enterprise. And I hasten, I hasten to add that there had never in the history of the world been another alternative economic system that was created like this. There's nothing. You can go back and search and look and ask historians. They'll say, no, there's never, there's been different flavors of price-based, you know, even down to barter, but there's never been anything like this that was created from scratch. And they felt, these engineers and scientists felt that there was no need for politicians in such a system, that they were expendable. They, they said, get rid of the politicians. We don't need any of them. We can control the whole kit and caboodle from an economic point of view. And if we do yes. that, then you'll have no need for any politicians. And a perfect example to look at this, by the way, I'm sure you're up on this already. Go read Aldous Huxley's famous book that was written in 1932, by the way, the same year that Columbia University popped out technocracy, uh, Brave New World. This was looking into the face of technocracy at that time. And you'll find in Brave New World, there's no political system. It's all run by the engineers and scientists and everything is run automatically. 
I, I would say by algorithm, but they didn't have the fancy computers back then that they had today. But you won't find any any political system in 1932, and this is the, this is where we're driving towards today. Um, can I just just ask you a bit more about the Canadian technocrats and and this idea that they were they were too similar to the Nazis? What what were the similarities? I mean, I I, I can sort of guess this sort yeah. of state allocation of things and the sort of slightly cultish nature of it. But what else? Well, in the United States, um, at least, this is where this started, of course, um, there was a gentleman, uh, not much known about him, unfortunately. His name was William Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. And he had had some association with um, the Nazi party in Germany. Not really strong, but you have to remember, there were lots of people in the United States that sympathized with Nazi Germany in the early days. He was one. And he came into the technocracy movement. He, he had some official position. It was like, you know, not a vice president, but something up there. He's a mucky muck. And he decided that it would be a good idea to have some type of visual identification for the party, for the movement. And so right. he adopted um, this, this gray suit, three-piece, very nice-looking suit, actually, a three-piece suit for men, and uh, a two- or a three-piece suit for women, with a skirt, of course. And they had a little pin, uh, technocracy pin, that they wore in the lapel. And they had a dark blue tie, uh, necktie. And everybody dressed the same, this charcoal gray suit. Well, it's a little bit lighter in charcoal gray. But it looks suspiciously like the SS <laughs> in Germany. Does it now? Which is quite a smart look, as you say. Yeah, they're marching around, you know, going to rallies and everybody shows up in their gray suits and the women in their gray thing. And they even had gray cars. You could go to any dealership in America and order a car and say, I want technocracy gray. And they go, sure, no problem. They sell you a car. And they would even paint the hubcaps on these cars orange, which is their alternative color. And... uh this was kind of an institutionalized movement in North America. In the United States at one point, there was um, at least 500,000 card-carrying, dues-paying members of Technocracy Incorporated. And as I said, it was even more popular in Canada for some reason. Canada didn't have the population that we had in the United States, still doesn't. But percentage-wise, okay, it caught on more readily in Canada than it did in, in the United States, probably. And what sort of people did this movement attract? A lot of engineers and scientists, for sure, <laughs> that, uh, you know, could they could kind of understand what they were talking about. But other than that, I mean, it wasn't a bunch of dope smoking hippies, you know, like we had in the 60s and the, and the early 70s. Um, most of these people were very kind of prominent, uh, middle class, certainly. Um, they were idealists that were looking for something brand new that had never been done before. This was the progressive mentality, of course, and it was very prominent back then. Um, there were different expressions of progressivism, including communism and uh, some other isms that, took, <laughs> that were back there. But uh, the technocrats hated communists, by the way. I need to bring that out early here. They had no use for, 
for communism, Marxism, socialism, because they believed that those other isms continued to be rooted in a price-based economic system, that money was still there. It was controlled, it was managed, but it wasn't radical enough for them. They wanted to get rid of currency altogether, get rid of anything that smacked of price-based economics, and institute a purely energy-based economic system. So this was new, it was progressive, uh, people initially didn't understand how crackpot it was, and so it was kind of easy to get your arms around initially. But it did peter out uh, in, at the end of the 30s, early 40s. World War II came along. Capitalism wasn't dead. The economy revived. Stock market revived. People's attitudes went up. And life went on. And technocracy just kind of got you know, left behind, uh, ultimately. But it was very attractive to a lot of people during that period. So how did it get revived and, and how did it take the form that it takes today? Because, I mean, I think I'm right in thinking, aren't I, that the Great Reset and United Nations Agenda 2030, I think it's now called, it was called Agenda 21, um, they're all manifestations of, of technocracy. Yes. And this is where the plot thickens. <laughs> this is what most people completely yeah. have missed. When I was working with another Brit, by the way, uh, Professor Anthony Sutton, back in the late 1970s, he <clears throat> he had come over to the United States, and um, he was a, a professor of economics at UCLA, and then he moved up to Stanford University and was a research fellow at Stanford at the Hoover Institution for War, Peace, and Revolution. The guy was a first-class scholar for sure. Well, he got kicked out and of Stanford because he was studying this group known as the Trilateral Commission. And he didn't really think about it, but the president of Stanford University, David Packard of Hewlett Packard fame, was a member of the Trilateral Commission himself and, and basically said, you're looking in the wrong place, Bob. Um and you're not going to quit either, so you're out of here. And they, they basically uh, drop-kicked him out of the academic community. I ran into Tony Sutton uh, down at a goal conference in New Orleans shortly thereafter. I had also been studying the Trilateral Commission from a different angle. I was in the finance world at the time. And I was just very struck by all the domination of these people in the United States in the Jimmy Carter administration uh, from 76 to 80. Uh, or excuse, yeah, 76 to 80. <clears throat> and I was too young to know what I was looking at and what, you know, what the significance was. But when I met Sutton, he said, he filled in all the pieces for me. He said, this is what's going on here. I said, wow, now I get it. It took me about 10 minutes once he started telling me. And um, after we had met, we knew we had to write about this. So we started writing a, a newsletter, ultimately produced two books called Trilaterals Over Washington. Now, having given that history, let me back up just to the Trilateral Commission itself. This is a group that was founded by David Rockefeller, the big money man of the 19th century, 20th century. And <clears throat> Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a brilliant political scientist um, from, guess where, Columbia University. 
That's just a little coincidence there, I'm sure. Uh, I say that facetiously. But uh, Brzezinski had written a book around 1970 called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. I know with hindsight now that this book was all about technocracy. We didn't really understand it back then. But all over the literature of the Trilateral Commission, and they had an international membership, by the way, Europe, uh, Japan, and the United States, actually North America, but mostly United States, <clears throat> they had as their mission to create a new international economic order. That was their phrase. That was their, their buzz phrase, a new international economic order. And Sutton and I wrote extensively about this back then. What does that mean, a new international economic order? And we discovered a lot of things by reading their own literature, et cetera, but we never really grasped the concept of technocracy at that time. Even though Brzezinski's book, The Technotronic Era, that, that was basically a knockoff of technocracy, the term, um, Here's what Rockefeller liked about Brzezinski and why they teamed up together. I know this now, just as certain as I am sitting here. Um, Brzezinski had this new idea for how a new international economic order could be established. Rockefeller was a guy who wanted everything. He knew that eventually the fiat monetary system was going to fizzle and collapse. It, it had, and the handwriting was on the wall even back then. Um, and so he was maneuvering to take his fortunes, his billions, and, uh, and trust funds and so on, and pivot those into something new that would allow them to perpetuate beyond the currency collapse that would ultimately come and then, you know, the evaporation of paper money, fiat money. And this was what he centered, this is what he focused on and why he did. The idea of a resource-based economic system made perfect sense to him. He had all the money. They understood big oil. They, you know, they were big in the oil business throughout the, the 1900s. Um, and they understood real estate and stuff like that. But they'd always been focused on money. Rockefeller figured, okay, I gotta think, change my thinking here. Let's go directly for the resources themselves. And don't worry about whatever monetary system might be in place because if we own all the resources, it doesn't matter. We own everything. It's kind of like neo-feudalism in a way. So Rockefeller loved this idea, resource-based economic system. Yeah, with me owning the resources, so let's go for it. The next year, in 1974, the United Nations issued a general resolution from their plenary session, oddly enough, that was called the establishment of a new international economic order. Same phrase. Nobody noticed it back then. It's the exact same phrase. So the, they fed this to the United Nations, lock, stock, and barrel, by the time 1992 came around with the Rio de Janeiro conference that produced the original Agenda 21 document. 
The United Nations had a multi-year run to get this right, and the Rockefeller crowd fed this to them to create a global contagion because Rockefeller never had that before. He was a U.S. guy primarily. So now he had a way to spread it to the entire planet. If I'm not getting ahead of myself, now we've got it on the entire planet right now with capitalism and free enterprise on the chopping block and this technocratic system rising up out of the ashes, if you will. You can just, and this, by the way, this is exactly what the Great Reset talks about today, that there will be a, a new system being rebuilt. I, that phraseology is just, it, it boggles my mind because how, why do you rebuild anything unless it got torn down in the first place? If your house burns down, you rebuild, right? If your business collapses, you rebuild. You don't rebuild on top of something that's already there. It predisposes there has to be something missing in order to rebuild. And this is what's happening today. There's lots of other pieces that I'm not even mentioning in this, James. What probably this one is the study group that the United Nations set up in advance of Rio de Janeiro in 1992, that study group was called the Brundtland Commission. And it ran for several years and produced a book at the end of it called Our Common Future. Everybody in the United Nations especially has written openly that that book was singularly the doctrinal book that produced Agenda 21. The executive chairman or the the head of that Brundtland Commission was a European lady by the name of Gru Harlem Brundtland. I'm sure you're familiar with her more than we are in the United States. And Brundtland uh, was the principal author of the book. And just, oh, just by coincidence again, she was a member of the Trilateral Commission. You can't make this up. She created the doctrine that got fed into Agenda 21, a resource-based economic system. It looked exactly like technocracy from the 1930s with some of the names changed. That's all. Not to protect the innocent, but you understand. The names were changed for the sake of marketing because they couldn't sell technocracy um, to anybody. So they called it sustainable development. They called it Agenda 21. They called it uh, other things since, natural capitalism. They call it green economy. Uh, They've got all kinds of synonyms, but it's the same old garbage coming straight out of the 1930s designed to capture the resources of the world for a small global elite group to control And they will be the ones that tap into this resource pool to make things for the rest of the world to consume. So we've gone from the new international economic order of 1973, that was definitely the genesis of modern globalization, into the United Nations, into uh, Rio de Janeiro, the official meeting where all the countries in the world got together, to ratify this this new thing by treaty 
that the world is going to be converted into a resource-based economic system. I probably said way too much at this point, but I'll let you Oh, back. no, no, I, I so enjoyed that. And we could spin off in all sorts of directions from here. Because um, I don't know whether you're aware, a, a few years ago, 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Watermelons. And what I set out to do in that book was to answer the question, if, if all these... If global warming, man-made global warming, isn't really a problem, if, if it's all been exaggerated and actually there's nothing to worry about, why would so many people and institutions, disparate people from hair shirt eco-loons to, uh, to, to hard-headed businessmen, to politicians, to scientists, why would they all be pushing this particular narrative? And I read a lot about, I, I, I knew about the, the Brundtland Commission. I knew about um, oh uh, the Club of Rome, for example, which has been pushing pushing these these similar ideas. Um, but I never quite and, and I, I knew about M. King Hubbard uh, because of peak oil theory, and I knew that peak oil theory was bunk. It had been been proved wrong several times through history. Peak resources generally are are a myth. I was missing, I should have read your books, I was missing that final link. For example, there's no mention in my book of the Trilateral Commission, and I realise now that Trilateral Commission is, it's like, it's like being initiated into an evil sect, isn't it, into an evil cult, and, and, and learning all the different rules. And you have, you have the key to all the mythologies. You are the keeper of that, and I, I respect you for that. Just before, before I ask you any more questions, tell me a bit about your your background. Your, your, I mean, have you just dedicated your life to researching this, or did you have uh, other jobs as well? I had to raise a family in the meantime, and uh, yeah, because there's <laughs> there's just not a lot of money in the kind of stuff we did no. even back then. Uh, so I had to make a living, <clears throat> and I did that uh, in the technology world. Um, I uh, uh, founded and ran a business for some years that had to do with um, with networking and uh, business consulting. Um, you know, it was a living. It was fun. I enjoyed it. But my original, uh, uh, as I got out of college, I was equipped with economics and I farmed, actually ran a farm for a while for two or three years. Did work out very well. I had a brown thumb. I couldn't get, I couldn't make anything grow like other people. So I got out of that and I pursued my finance, my love for finance and for the stock market and research and analysis and stuff. <clears throat> and I worked for some uh, brokerage companies early on to do uh, financial reports for companies that they wanted to invest in. So I would go out on assignment like a reporter, like a journalist, kind of, and I'd visit companies headquarters. Yeah. I'd talk to the people and I'd gather their financials and write reports on whether or not they were going to pass or fail in the next 10 years. And this is where I came across uh, originally the Trilateral Commission. I My studies took me to Africa to study gold and the gold stocks and, uh, you know, the gold companies, the mining companies down there. So I went down to uh, South Africa a couple of times and um, uh, learned a lot of stuff that I'd never really considered before, but I kept running into these members of the Trilateral Commission everywhere I went. And I thought, what the heck is this? This just doesn't make sense to me. So that's where my radar went up. And um, when I met Sutton, of course, uh, we, we were very attracted to each other because we both had the base of economics to, to communicate. 
and we we just went forward from there. But I will have to say that my my modern skills, uh, if you could call them skills, to do research and write, were so heavily influenced by my relationship with Anthony Sutton. Um, I didn't have a master's degree, a PhD in anything, but I earned one with him because he was such a world-class researcher. He taught me so many things I never, ever would have learned in university. He'd learned them kind of the hard way as he went along. And uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful that I had that experience and it served me all the rest of my life. Tell me about these special skills, because uh, maybe I'm lacking them. What, what, what did you learn from, from Anthony? How to find information, how to get, you know, how to smell a rat when there's a rat, you know, when there's a rat around. <clears throat> he was yeah. suspicious of just about everything he touched initially. He, he was the prove, prove it to me guy. And um, it, in the university, you have access to uh, libraries, to lending libraries. You can, you can get your hands on any information in the world. If you go through a like a Stanford University, um, you have access to catalogs that nobody else has access to. And so <clears throat> Sutton was always digging for information. And he would pull in resources from all over the world on, on projects he was working on. This is what I couldn't do. I could barely, when I went through college, I could barely use the card catalog. I just, you know, it was yeah. really <clears throat> But he taught me how to find stuff. You know, once it was necessary to find something, um, you know, we'd set out on a trail and we'd eventually find it. We always did. And so in the early days, um, <clears throat> we got a hold of every piece of literature and every study that the Trilateral Commission had produced from 1973 at least to 1980. We had every single document that these people had written. Now, nobody else had that, but it was Sutton's persistence and his ability to kind of, you know, get in to the inside and get that stuff. That's what we based our writings on was what they said, not, not what we think, you know, thought they said. So the, anyway, that was, that really helped me. It really helped me. So um, before we move, we, we move to the kind of the main course, which is like where we are now. Mm. Just tell me a bit more about two things. I want to know a bit more about David Rockefeller, because I imagine that he was he was not the original Rockefeller who who, who founded. What was it? Standard Oil. Was that the right? Yeah, um, right. He would he would have been a son or a grandson and therefore prone to that kind of decadence and sort of left wingery which seems to afflict the sons or grandsons of 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 self-made millionaires is that right that is correct and the rockefeller dynasty pretty much ruled all the way through the 1900s and it well it still does but i mean that's really where they made their big uh their big splash their fortunes etc and it's not just that they made a lot of money. They began to use their money for social control, for social projects and stuff, where they would try and control society uh, to get people to do things they wanted them to do. Like, uh, like Bill Gates is now. That's exactly right. to be an affliction right. of, of billionaires. <clears throat> that's exactly right. And David Rockefeller was, um, 
uh, he was the torchbearer for the Rockefeller family. There were other, he had other peers, not, well, not peers, he had other family members that were his age that were very influential, but they were never as visible as he was. He was the guy that really was the, you know, the architect behind what happened in 1973. So how old was he at the time? And what were his... Was he was he a sort of hippie type or or a, I mean tell me about him? No, he is very um, very much the businessman, the banker, um, you know, the international banker at that point with Chase Manhattan Bank. That was his bank. Um, you know, always wore a suit, always wore a tie. He he looked like I mean he looked like a guy that was ready to go to Davos back in 1973. He was just one of those guys, and you know had private planes to fly around, and uh, he was the the global elite of the global elite for that day. And I I noticed that the timing of this. America sort of wasn't exactly on the gold standard, but there was a connection with gold, wasn't there? Which ended in 1971. And that was the end of pretty much the death knell of fiat currency from that point on. It's been losing its way ever since, hasn't it? It has. And um, that was, I think that was part of the mix in that day that resulted in the Trilateral Commission in 1973. It wouldn't be appropriate to auto, you know, to automatically say that it was David Rockefeller that architected the, uh, the you know, the disassociation with gold in currencies, but <clears throat> I believe that was part of what convinced him that fiat currencies had a limited lifespan. Mathematically speaking, it was undeniable, and I think probably that's kind of what helped push him over the edge to to say, we need to get our hands on the resources. We'll ride this fiat currency thing until the end, but we need to get our hands on the resources in the end of it so that no matter what comes out the other side, we're in control of it still. That makes sense. He, he sounds a, a really terrifying figure. I mean, he must have been stupendously rich in, in 1973. He had no need of anything at all. And yet he moved on to the next step, which is really trying to well i mean doing what various people have done in in history which is to try and corner the market in particular in particular resources but he wanted to do it with the lot he wanted the whole world america was not enough he wanted everything but most people haven't even heard of him i mean they'll, they'll be fully familiar with the surname but not with you know david rockefeller he's not a name that people know about no He's, uh, he was a very understated, underspoken type of a guy. He was not a, he was not a, um, a blowhard in any way. He didn't give up and give fiery speeches somewhere. He wasn't uh, a showman like, uh, uh, like President Trump is, for instance. You know, I mean, that was just not him. He was always kind of in the background, you know, kind of like uh, not the shrinking violet, but he, was, uh, he never really put his face up front. Did, did you ever meet him? I did not. We met several of the members, uh, other members of the Trilateral Commission. I never met him. Um, I did have a head-to-head debate one time, however, with um, uh, with the executive director of the Trilateral Commission. And that was very interesting. We did it on national radio here in the States. Um, 
The host of the radio program was um, Larry King, a famous broadcaster now. And Larry King had um, the largest overnight radio program in the country. Um, it was run on mutual broadcasting system here in America. And he had a huge audience, overnight audience. And he invited uh, this Charles Heck was his name and myself to do kind of a point counterpoint arc, you know, discussion about this, you know, what we're talking about. And it was supposed to be a one hour interview. Um, it got so hot and heavy that it ran for three hours instead of two. And at the end of it, um, it was so overwhelmingly against um, the Trilateral Commission that Charles Heck, who was, or that uh, Larry King, who was very liberal progressive back then, he shook his head. All he could say is he shook his head literally like this. And he says, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And he shook our hands and off, you know, basically showed us out of the studio. And we never saw him again. But uh, wow. we had debates with other members of the Trilateral Commission as well, uh, where we would do the same thing, point, counterpoint. And as soon as they would open their mouth to the public, oh, the public just went nuts. They just, you know, you not getting away with this. Um, That's so we had a very we, time. That's very interesting because that is so we're we're seeing this reaction now, aren't we, to the Great Reset? Finally, in the last few weeks, people have woken up and they're going, oh, my God, no way are they doing this to us. But we'll come to that in a moment. I want you to tell me because I think this is key. The Trilateral Commission, which almost nobody has heard of, except maybe at the back of their minds. But tell, tell me what it is and who the members have been and are and what it does. Well, there's all, it's a small membership organization. You don't have an application to join, by the way. They pick you by executive committee. In other words, they look for people that, that will achieve their goals. And um, they go out and tap people, kind of like um, a fraternity would do at university, you know, where they watch you and then they come out and they tap you on the shoulder and say, come with us. And they, they put you through the, the, the rush as they call it. <clears throat> but um, originally there was about uh, a little over 200 members from Japan, Europe, and North America, and mostly the United States. Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was the first executive director. Um, and all of those people uh, were chosen out of certain fields. There were some media giants involved. Uh, there was law firms, uh, high, you know, highly ele elevated law firms around the, the world. There was politicians, um, high-level politicians around the world. Uh, there were the corporate mucky bucks, the chairmen of the board or board members of some of the giant corporations like Deere and Company, uh, Tractor Maker, IBM. Uh, you get the idea, the, the, the money. Yeah, yeah. The money People. A lot of banks were involved as well. Uh, Chase Manhattan, of course, but J.P. Morgan and some of the other European banks were represented as well. So it was kind of a mix of people, but collectively it was a group that had, they had their fingers kind of into all different areas in society, from banking to manufacturing to, to the social, you know, it, it was kind of a... a <laughs> 
I, I don't want to give more credit than I than they deserve. It was kind of a genius selection of people in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They put a team together that could get the job done. What was the job and, and, and what do they do, these people? I mean, well, let me tell you what happened. This was this was phase one. We're we're probably in phase four right now, but phase one was to get control of the global economic system. And how they did that, <clears throat> they basically took over the United States government and during the Carter administration. And Jimmy Carter himself was a member of the Trilateral Commission. So was his running mate and vice president, Walter Mondale. He, the first thing he did, uh, Carter, when he got seated, was he appointed Zbigniew Brzezinski to be his national security advisor. And then they uh, proceeded to appoint members of the Trilateral Commission into cabinet positions in our country. That's, those are the people that run the agencies, the important agencies. And at one point, all of the members of, of the president's cabinet were members of the Trilateral Commission, except for one. It was a complete takeover. And initially, every people got upset because, oh my gosh, the United States is being taken over. You know, our political system is being taken over. However, people in the commission repeatedly told us they're not interested in a political system. They're not interested in politics. And I'm convinced now they were not interested in politics, even though they took over the United States government, the whole cotton picking thing. Well, what happened was, is that they were, what they were after was the, the economic engine that the United States government drove the world with. We were the most important, the most powerful, the most influential economic entity on the entire planet. No, no offense to England either, by the way, when I say that. But, yeah. but they knew if they could get a hold of the United States government, they would be able to control economic policy. So over the years, we saw such things happen as, uh, for instance, the World Bank. The, the U.S. always traditionally appointed the president of the World Bank, right? Europe gets to appoint the, the head of the IMF. That's the way the monetary system was kind of set up. So eight out of 10 of the presidents of the World Bank, starting from back there going forward, were members of the Trilateral Commission, eight out of 10. The other position was important was the world was the US trade representative, the person who wrote all the treaties, you know, the economic agreements and the stuff. The US trade representative, a very important position. Nine out of twelve of the USTRs, even up in modern day, have been members of the Trilateral Commission. These were the people that wrote the economic treaties that basically have sunk the world into an abyss now. And I could go on and on with other threads of this, but they were after the economic machinery. They could really care less about being president or vice president or whatever. And they did this with just total skill. And they have, uh, by the way, they have continued their hegemony in our government not so much for political sake, but for economic sake. For instance, 
Ronald Reagan got got elected. His running mate was George Bush. He was a member of the commission. Then came Bush himself. He was president for four years. Then came Bill Clinton and Al Gore, both members of the Trilateral Commission, and they stuffed their cabinets with people too. Uh, then he got into the George W. Bush administration in 2000. His running mate and vice president, Dick Cheney, was one of the most powerful members of the Trilateral Commission in that day. And the story goes on. They've had their influence in our government and in others as well. But, you know, we've been the primary driver of all this stuff, unfortunately. And they use these positions to... Uh, to further their economic goals of creating a new international economic order. And do they all, I mean, if you are a member of the Trilateral Commission, do you automatically believe in technocracy, in, in the idea of a new economy based on resource allocation rather than money? I mean, did, did, did the Bushes, father and son, actually believe in this stuff? Or were they just kind of fellow travelers? I believe they did. Even though they were political players, <clears throat> um, I believe they understood the big plan perfectly well. And <clears throat> they may they may not have had any idea of the original technocracy movement, you know, from Columbia University necessarily. I don't know why anybody would go back and study that if you're a politician. They might have, but uh, but they fully understood Zbigniew Brzezinski and you know his plan for the ages, and there have been other yeah. people uh, on the uh, you know scholars on the right side of the political spectrum that were just as strategic as Zbigniew Brzezinski. These were the academics you see that stood behind. You know, isn't it interesting that it was the academics that started this whole thing in the first place, like Brzezinski? a political scientist at Columbia University. It was really kind of his idea, his spark that got this whole thing going. And throughout the age, throughout the decades, we have seen these academics hiding behind, you know, kind of behind the political curtain, pulling the strings. This is exactly what we see today with all these, you know, with the, you know, the, the, the Neil Ferguson's of the world that are hiding behind their computer models. Uh, do they have any qualifications to run society politically for the good of people? No, they don't. <laughs> but they do it anyway. And somehow they've gotten away with it all these years. But the academics were the ones that kind of drove this through different political persuasions. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican in America. The yeah. Trilateral Commission always had their man or their men or women in the system mixing it up. Would you, would you, when, when Trump talks about draining the swamp and about the deep state, is, is the Trilateral Commission essentially the deep state? I would, you know, loosely speaking, I would say so. The deep state has never really been defined by anybody. The swamp, you know, it's just swamp creatures. It's just kind of like, you know, you're pointing finger at a, you know, crowd of who knows, you know, thousand people or just maybe New York City in general. I don't know. But uh, it's very hard to, you get a lot of opinions, I guess, who the swamp really is. But if I were to say, if I were to look back and say, well, who are the real, who are the real culprits in this whole thing? The first people I'd point to would be members of the Trilateral Commission. I definitely would. 
And it's not just America, you understand. Here's the problem that Trump has. The Trilateral Commission is global. That if, if you say, well, the swamp is global, then how can one president in the United States drain the swamp? It doesn't make sense, does it? It's not going to happen that well, way. Well, indeed. I, I want you to name a few more names. I mean, I'm shocked that, that the, the Bushes, uh, you know, who are notionally conservatives, not not evil kind of technocrats, um, name me, just give me a few more names of the kind of people who are involved in this over the years. Well, <clears throat> um, one group, well, of course, the Club of Rome, uh, <laughs> those people have, have had a pretty significant influence. And, and don't forget that when the Club, Club of Rome was formed originally, it was in Italy. And it was uh, the original meeting and the original formation of the thing was in a villa uh, that was owned by David Rockefeller. <laughs> it's like you just can't make this up. They had the bases covered <clears throat> on you know how they were going to do this, but here's some overlapping organizations that were very influential over the years. You had the Aspen Institute, for instance. Um, it used to be called originally the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies. That didn't fly too well after a while because it was too religious, so they changed their name and they just are now the Aspen Institute. But they have been grooming and teaching executives from all over the world about the subtleties of globalization and stuff. So they've got a lot of their members are, uh, are members, are, are, their board members are members of the Trilateral Commission. Then you have the Aspen Institute, something you might recognize, or not Aspen, but uh, the Atlantic Institute, which you might re recognize uh, in Europe or in Great Britain. <clears throat> but the Atlantic Institute, you can look at their board of directors today and you'll find, I don't know, at least three or four or five members of the Trilateral Commission are on that. And these different organizations kind of had a different slant. For instance, Aspen has been a training organization primarily um, where they take and mentor executives like presidents and vice presidents of these giant companies and they they teach them about how globalization works and stuff. Well, that's that's different than the Atlantic Institute. It has a different mission. It's more economic oriented and it's more probably aligned with the World Economic Forum, which now, we, and by the way, here's another organization you have. The World Economic Forum has been saturated with members of the Trilateral Commission over the years, attendees. Um, so, uh, you, you have other, there's other um, uh, American organizations, or at least based in America, uh, institutes, you, you know, think tanks, the Brookings Institution, for instance, is one. Um, but you, you, you kind of get the idea. These are the elite of the elite. The, the Council on Foreign Relations has been a huge player for recruitment, um, where people are inducted into the global philosophy and taught and they go to meetings and they rub shoulders with the bucky box and uh, pretty much anybody can join the Council on Foreign Relations, but if you stay in it long enough, you're gonna get, uh, your, the fabric of your life is gonna be dyed a different color <laughs> and you'll yes. be with them. That may, uh, I hope that kind of answers. No, Patrick, this, this, um. In a way, you answer a question, I think. See if I'm, I'm thinking on the right lines here. I've observed 
people, contemporaries of mine who've gone into politics in the UK and have attained a very senior level. One of them was George Osborne, who became Chancellor of the Exchequer. But I used to see him in the school playground. We, we, we had kids at the same school, you know, when he was sort of up and coming. I, I, I'm friends with a guy called Michael Gove, who is now sort of effectively the Deputy Prime Minister. I've had I've had two of my university contemporaries and friends become Prime Minister, David Cameron and, Boris, and the current one, Boris Johnson. And what I've noticed in several of those cases is that it's almost like they've flipped at a certain point. And I sometimes wonder is, is that when you reach a certain level of eminence or influence in politics, do they kind of sidle up to you and give you the key to the room where it happens? It's like, it's explained to you, look, this is the deal. This is where the world economy is going. If you want to be wise, if you want to be part of the elite, you accept this. Is that how it works? I think there is a culture uh, a, a, amongst the global elite that that is exactly how it works. If you want to get along, you have to go along. It's just that simple. And that's that's probably true in all kinds of different scenarios in life, whether you work at a hospital or, a, uh, you know, somebody's going to take you aside and say, you, you know, you kind of got your idea, own ideas and that's great, but this is the way it works here. <laughs> and uh, if you want to stay here for any length of time, then this is what you need to do to, you know, make sure you stay here. <clears throat> but I've seen this, I've seen this type of thing that you're describing many times uh, over the years where, and I scratched my head. Uh, how could that happen where somebody started out down one course and all of a sudden they're going yeah. this way? What happened? And I would look yeah. at Prince at, at, at your Boris Johnson at this point, and I would call him uh, just kind of knee-jerk, uh, you know, name-calling. I would call him the consummate technocrat right now, the way he's yes. behaving. I know he didn't. He didn't sound that way, as I remember from his speeches some time ago. But man, he's hitting the nail on the head for technocracy right now. That's right. I mean, his his ten point green green revolution is essentially technocracy, isn't it? Totally it's extraordinary. Totally. And, and he started. He was skeptical. I mean, he was a he was you know all for shale oil, um, shale gas. Uh, he rejected wind turbines and stuff, and suddenly, whoa! Yes, yes, this I is know. terrifying, Patrick. Some I know somebody so, got um, <clears> him. <throat> we've we've had this joke in America, at least I have with some of my friends. It's not a general joke, but <clears throat> but it's like when somebody goes to Washington from our local community, somebody we know and like and, you know, understand, et cetera. It's like a little rain cloud forms over their head, you know, when they get to Washington, D.C. And after a while, they just disappear into the fog, <laughs> you know, and they're different. Yeah. They come back and they're different. They're voting for things. They would never, you know, they said they would yeah. never vote for something. And all of a sudden, then boom, they vote for it. Uh, we see yeah. this all the time. And partly it's peer pressure. Partly it's uh, just being in the crowd. The group think that's important. But I do, I'm just certain 
that there are situations where people get pulled aside and say, we need to have a little talk here. I'll give you an example. <laughs> this is kind of yeah. an example. Back in the early uh, Trump presidency, somebody showed up on the back door of the White House, you know, knocking on the door, right? Hey, can I come in? And no schedule, nothing in the schedule book for this person to show up, right? They just showed up and knocked on the door and said, hi, I'm here. It was Henry Kissinger, who was one of the original members of the Trilateral Commission, I might add. And he said, I, I, I'm here and I'd, I'd like to sit down with, uh, with Donald. Oh, come right in, Henry. <laughs> you know, nobody else can come in this way. But since it's you, sure, come on right in, you know. Yeah. This kind of backdoor, uh, you know, uh, diplomacy has been whittled down to be a, you know, a fine science in America where people finally learn, okay, this is the way it works here. And if you want to come out of it with your skin, then you're going to have to comply. That's all I can figure. It's the only right. thing that makes sense. I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Patrick, for being so kind of normal looking, shall I say? I mean, you look quite distinguished and you're very reasonable and you're amused. You're, you're, you counter the, this, this notion that anyone who believes in this stuff must be a kind of tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. But I've got to ask you, I mean, this is just about the most shocking thing. I, I think people listening or watching this, this, this podcast are going to be going, what? And I think they're going to be asking, if this stuff is so egregious, why has it not come out more? I mean, why, you know, you've been writing about this for years. Why, why does it still go on? Well, <clears throat> I'll tell you, most people don't listen, for one thing. That's just been my experience. Most, most of the citizenry that we've addressed don't listen. And heaven knows the mucky mucks in government don't listen. They all have their own agenda. And <clears throat> they're afraid to buck the big guys. I've had, I've bumped into this so many times over the years. I, I just, uh, you know, it just boggles my mind. Where, <clears throat> where you'll sit down and talk to people and explain it to them, and they will agree with you 100%. Oh, man, you're, you know, it's right on the money. We see what's going on. It's just, yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, something needs to be done about it. And the minute they walk away, they just do nothing. You know, they just, they're, they're afraid to do anything because they don't want to buck the man. Uh, you know, they're, they're afraid of these people. And so they just don't say anything. Um, I think this is kind of a, a cultural thing. It's just the way people are. They may get alarmed over something. I mean, <clears throat> you know, look at uh, look at things like, um, you know, why hasn't there been more resistance against global against the whole global warming scam? Well, lots of people yeah. understand that the science on their side is completely cracked and it's useless yeah. and worthless, but they won't stand up to it to, you know, to take it out. Uh, for any number of reasons, either they're profiting economically or they're scared of the people, literally. In America now, we have, <clears throat> we have groups like Black Lives Matter running around and Antifa threatening people, saying, 
if you don't do what we say, we're going to burn your house down. Oh, that gets pretty personal now. But I think we've seen this on a macrocosm for a long time. And, and by the way, I have talked to some influential people over the years. I'm not just saying I talked to my neighbor down the street. People that could have had something to do to push back on this, but they didn't do it. Yes, this is very much my feeling. I mean, Michael Gove being the obvious example. Michael Gove, you know, he's he's one of the more intelligent politicians in the country. Um, he read my book, which lays out very, very clearly in, in a way that no sentient person really could read that book and not realize that global warming is the most massive scam. There is no evidence for it. There is no evidence that... Um, the solutions are going to help, you know, wind power and, and, and solar energy, not good, not good environmentally, not good economically, not good socially on any number of levels. And yet still he sort of plowed on. In, in fact, he embraced the green blob, which I found puzzling until I spoke to you. And now you've, you've made it feel very clear. So let's, let's cut to the chase. Now the great reset, uh, what does it what will it entail for us what what's what's the plan what do they want in america we'd call it the green new deal that was proposed kind of originally by senator markey and, and a, a congresswoman uh alexandra ocasio cortez um they were laughed out of the room when they first spoke this stuff uh, it was so ridiculous everybody thought but since then, now, um, at least half of Congress is sympathetic towards it, and all of business, big business, is sympathetic toward it. <clears throat> it's, like a, it's like a virus of the mind, not a virus, you know, like COVID-19, but it's, it's a thought virus. It's just like, man, it just, infilt, you know, it gets in people's heads, and the idea starts kicking around, and somehow they get deceived into thinking it's a great idea. Um, the idea of, uh, and, and by the way, let's just dispel this at first, based on what I've already said. When, when they talk about wealth distribution, and that's frequently, you hear that. <clears throat> there is no wealth to distribute. This is the first big lie that just stands out from an economic point of view. There is no wealth to share, does anybody think that the people, the global elite running this whole thing who are rich beyond their wildest imagination are going to give up one nickel of their wealth to help you or me or anybody else in society, much less the poor? No way. They want to have all of the resources. So when they trick people into think, well, we're going to we're going to redistribute the wealth here. No, they're not. They're going to redistribute it towards themselves. You just don't understand what the context of what they're talking about is about getting it redistributed from you to them. And they're doing a pretty darn good job globally during this pandemic. The whole year, at least in America, the companies that have gotten filthy, stinking rich are the Amazons of the world, the Teslas of the world, the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world. These companies are just raking in money 
while everybody else is falling apart. Businesses are flying, you know, falling left and right in America. Restaurants going out of business, bars going out of business, small companies going out of business. Just decimated our economy. So having said that, is that, that part of the plan? Pardon? That that's part of the plan, right? That, that they want to small, to destroy the small medium businesses. It's the crushing of free market economics on a global basis. They want to crush it everywhere, and this is this has been the goal forever. You know, even <clears throat> even um, the United Nations uh, four years ago. Uh, Christiana Figueres, who I know she's in your country right now, I think, working for a, an NGO. She was the head of climate change. She ran the Paris climate uh, climate conference, by the way. She was the, the climate change czar at the United Nations. She said openly in a press conference that the United Nations goal is to replace capitalism and free enterprise with sustainable development. She said they have an intention, they have a timetable, and they have the plan. <clears throat> you couldn't be more blunt as to what was going to happen. When Klaus Schwab came along and started the World Economic Forum and started his whole, everything he's got going now, it's gotten very big since the beginning. Um, this is his mission to convert all of the big giant corporations of the world to get them in line with this so that they, you know, they're part of this crowd that will profit from it. <clears throat> but everybody else is targeted for just getting flattened, just stomped. And this is happening and nobody's being alarmed about this. I, I, I've been, having been a small businessman for most of my life, I cry for these people that are getting driven out of business. They got their life in it. They worked maybe 20, 30, 40 years to build a, a little business, not a big business, just a little business for themselves. And they're making good, they're making money. They're supporting their family, maybe their extended family. And all of a sudden, some government politician comes along, you're not, you're not essential. You can't run that business anymore. You need to shut your door and lock it up right now and tell your customers they can come back next month. This is just murder of business, just killing it. And I know it's happening in Great Britain. I know it's happening in Europe. It's happening everywhere on the planet right now. And this is the goal of the Great Reset. The Great Reset, by definition, if you think about it, you cannot have a reset unless there's some vacuum that happened before you push the button. Mm -hmm. You can't rebuild going, you can't rebuild something unless the first thing has been destroyed. Yeah. And we've heard this from the global warming crowd for years. I hate to flip, say why we're flipping back and forth here in just a minute. We've heard this thing for years from the global warming crowd that capitalism is evil, that, <clears throat> that mankind is responsible for the warming of the planet, which will certainly kill the whole planet that the global commons is the only way we must work together in order to save the planet. Yes. All of these, all of this, this craziness has been rolled over into the great reset to just flatten the economic system of the world so that sustainable development can rise out. Now, global warming, by the way, the solution to it, they never, ever 
have proposed any other alternative than sustainable development. There is no plan B. There is no uh, retrofitting of capitalism or free market economics. No, it's never been that. There has only been one solution they ever offered to fix the problem, and that was sustainable development. And I will contend from day one that the whole global warming, global cooling back in the 70s, this whole thing has been a made-up social engineering program to drive people into sustainable development. That's the only answer they ever provided for anybody. And that's what Klaus Schwab is suggesting now with the Great Reset. It's so bad, he said. Oh, the world is so bad. Capitalism is so broken. Oh, it just can't possibly survive. What mm -hmm. we need to have is let it go, let it die, let it you know, just go and disintegrate. We'll help it, put, give it a good push on the way out, make sure it's dead. And then the great reset, why we'll fix everything. We have technology now that can do this. And you know, we have new ideas. Just trust us. You're going to love this. It's going to be great, they say. You know, but you look at the fine print. You look down at the fine print of what they want to do. We will have no autonomy whatsoever as people if these people get their way. There will be no autonomy. Property rights are going out the door. All of Western civilization is based on property rights, the ability for people to own individual property, whether it's the clothes on your back or the diamond ring on your finger or the house that you live in, or maybe you've got a little farm or a little business somewhere. Or maybe you have an apartment building. They don't want anybody to own property. Whoa, that's radical. And then they try and tell us, well, it's actually cool not to own property. You don't have to worry about paying the taxes, this, whatever. But, oh, wait a minute. <clears throat> okay, so if we, the citizens, don't own the property, but there is property because we're living in it, well, who owns the property then? Oh, somebody has to own it, don't they? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. And they're saying to themselves, we own it, you turkeys. <laughs> we, will, we will charge you rent for the property that we own, but you don't have to own anything, and that's a good thing for you, they say. Well, I'll tell you what, this, this it, it's like the, the walnut shells where you have three walnut shells on the table and there's a pea underneath one of them and the magician mm -hmm. goes like this and mixes them all up. <laughs> where's, <Yeah. laughs> where's the pea? And you turn all three over and they're all empty and the, you know, the guy had pulled it out somewhere along the way. <clears throat> this is the biggest intellectual sham of history. Mm. It just, they're telling us what they're going to do, but nobody thinks beyond, you know, the end of their nose what this means. And, you know, you, if you, if you want a scary read before you go to bed, get the Agenda yeah. 21 book. It's still available on Amazon, by the way. Uh, it's a or big old orange book, you know, the eight and a half by 11 size. <clears throat> um, I think it's a 250 pages, something like that. Read the original Agenda 21 book. It'll freak you out. This is what they want to do. This is the Great Reset. Okay, go get the 2030 Agenda document from the United Nations, which is kind of the update for that. Same thing. Read it from cover to cover. 
They want everything. They want you to have nothing. And and I guess at the end of it, I, I could just ask you, uh, James, are you ready to give up everything in your life for the sake of somebody else controlling your death? Hell no. I'm certainly not. So, so, Patrick, what do we do? Is it too late? Can we still resist at this stage? Because, I mean, this year has been, they've really accelerated the program, haven't they, under, under cover of this, yes. I would argue, largely manufactured viral scare. Yes. And, and you know, by the way, I, I'm, I, you haven't told me this, but I've listened to a couple of your other uh, interviews um, on the Internet. <clears throat> um, I know you're clued in to understand what happened originally at Imperial College of London with Neil Ferguson with his original computer model stating that half a million Brits are going to die and that 1.2 million yeah. Americans are going to die. Well, yeah. he's been shamed out of the com community since then, by the way. People don't know that because there's never a tagline on the story. The guy's software modeling so software has been absolutely decimated by legitimate computer scientists say this thing's a piece of junk. And he's been morally compromised along the way, not, you know, won't go into that, but he's got his own issues yeah. and problems removed from boards and stuff. The guy's career is in tatters right now, but he was the guy that started this. We also know that Imperial College and others of that group like East Anglia um, have been those universities that provided the alarmist studies based on computer models to the global warming crowd for decades now. These, this is where this stuff came from. Same type of computer models, same type of mentality. We're all going to die if we don't do something right now. Yeah. And the policies that Ferguson threw out there to the world, he's no policymaker, but he did it, close all the schools, social distancing, wear masks, and lockdown. Those four things were the policies that went out to the whole world. They had a special relationship with the United Nations, and they, and they say so on their website. They fed that all into the UN immediately. The UN, through the World Health Organization, which has treaties with almost every nation on Earth, they exercised, they pushed the button on those treaties and said, here is what you must do because we have a pandemic. And all of a sudden, boom, the whole world does the same thing at the same time. Yes. All this happened here. And here's the problem with global warming. How quickly things change. But the one thing that global warming could never get traction over, and they kept telling us, Al Gore told us we're all going to die in 12 years if yeah. we don't do something, you know? They never had any dead bodies. You can't convince anybody there's a threat if there's no dead bodies. And this finally yeah. got through to them. And they said, let's leave this horse over here in the stable. <laughs> and let's get a new horse to ride for a while. And let's show the public a few dead bodies and we'll blame it on this. And we'll scare the crud out of them and get them to yeah. do what we want them to do. So the United Nations exercised all their global treaties at the same time, and that's how it got spread to the whole planet. But I ask people over here, if you think that there's some other thing going on here other than what I'm trying to present, just tell me one thing then. 
who has the power to shut down the global economy? I uh, listen. How about Democrats? Ooh, those nasty old Democrats probably did it. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. There's no Democrats in Europe. Those are, that's us. <laughs> that's, we have Democrats. Oh, well, it's the Republicans. It's, it's, uh, it's the Bushes or somebody, you know, doing it. Well, no, no, no. That's just us. We, there's no Republicans in Africa, right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. Who did it? Okay, who is it? Oh, it's the EU. That must be it. The EU orchestrated this and they shut down the global economy. Oh, you know? That may, maybe, but I don't think the Africans would like that very much if they caught wind of that, right? I don't think yeah. South America would like that if the EU, you yeah. know, crushed them. <clears throat> okay, that's none of those. They're not the culprit. Okay, so the question again, who shut, who has the power and the moxie to shut down the entire global economic system? You have to follow yeah. the money, you have to follow the power, and you have to look at the only person in the room, the 800-pound gorilla that has threatened to do it already, and you look straight back into the eyes of the United Nations, Christiana Figueres, back through Gru Huntland, uh, Brutland, uh, uh, Harlem Brutland, right straight back to 1973 and the Trotado Commission. You can just follow this whole thing back down the line of history and say, dang, End game has just occurred, folks. We're at it. Yeah. Right. Well, what can we do about it? That's the next question. I, that's what you ask. I had totally. Like- <laughs> Tell me, help, help me now. We're, we're all we're all on the edge of our seats, Patrick, because we're, we're thinking uh, there's a, there's a lot of fear right, around right now. And if you can offer us a crumb of hope or even a kind of a roadmap for escape. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Now is the time for people, citizens, to take to the street. Not with weapons of destruction, not to harm anybody. I would never recommend that, and I don't. That Philosophically, I'm totally opposed to that. But now is the time for citizens who understand what's going on to take to the street to message other citizens on what's going on, to bring them out of the fog of deception, invite them to be in the street as well, and grow a movement that cannot be ignored by these boneheads. These people, in my mind, are absolutely insane. Even though they have their own ax to grind, I realize that, and from, from my point of view, they're absolutely nuts. Their arguments fall apart on so many different levels that yeah. when you really understand what they're trying to do, you say, this is insane. It's just absolutely insane, but they're trying to do it anyway. These are the relatively small group of people that must be told the message. You're crazy. We do not accept you. We will not accept you. Get out of public policy. If you yep. want to play scientist or something, go do that. Go buy yourself a laboratory and go have fun. But stay out of public policy. You don't own the world. You don't control the world. And we're not going to let you control the world. That's the message that needs to be sent. Can I digress for one other story? Please. Just a little story. <laughs> if we have time. Go on. <clears throat> yeah. 
Back when I, I mentioned the interview I did with the executive director of the trial out of uh, with Larry King, I discovered something <clears throat> afterwards. I actually went and had breakfast with him. Early morning, I think it was a Denny's or something open in the building downstairs. And we talked. <clears throat> and I discovered that philosophically speaking, that he was a member of Christian science, which is kind of a mind-twisting uh, religion that doesn't believe in evil. They don't believe evil exists. And if evil things happen to you, it's only because you're giving assent to it in your mind, you know, that somehow you believe it, it gets you. I never quite understood it. But it's a little bit nutsy. <clears throat> and I've seen this philosophy, not that all trial commission members are Christian scientists, there weren't, but I just say that. I've, I ran across this philosophy many times with them directly, where you'll say something to them that would criticize what they're doing. Well, I, I don't like this policy, X, whatever it is. This policy, this is Y. And they look at you and say, wow, how can you think that way? It's like blank stare. How could you possibly come up with some other, you know, that what we're doing is just so good and we're doing it for you. How can it possibly be criticized? And they're just as sincere as the day is long. They just like the deer caught, you know, in the headlights. Like, well, why would anybody resist us? Well, why would, why would anybody be against this wonderful, wonderful idea that we have? You know, like there's some paternalistic figure or something responsible for our, you know, childhood. Um, I've never fully understood that. I can explain it a little bit. But this is the mentality that this crowd across the top, the top layer of this global elite, this is their mentality by and large. They can't conceive how anybody would ever be disappointed with them. <laughs> And nobody has really ever challenged them, James. That's part of the problem. They're so far removed in their ivory towers of academia and in you know flying their private jets and their 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 castles and their mansions and their <clears throat> whatever. They don't have any contact with real people, and they just operate in a vacuum. And they nobody's ever really confronted them to say, "You people, get out of here!" You just, you know, if there was, <clears throat> if there was a group of people in a town, um, you know, that was doing something that was going to burn the town down or whatever. I mean, the townspeople would run them out of town. No, you can't do that. You just put your matches away. You can't do that. But nobody's really ever challenged these people. And I say now it's time to make to make known to them that we will not accept their nutsiness any, any longer. We've discovered them, yeah. we've exposed them, the American people, the European people, the, the British people, the African people, the Indian people, South American, the Brazilian people, 
we need to stand up in bulk at this point and say, you people, get out. We don't want you here. Do you read yeah. my lips? We don't want you here. Get out of our system. Get out of our public policy arena. You do not belong here anymore. <clears throat> I don't know if we can get this message across, but I guarantee you it won't be, we won't get it across if we do nothing. If we do nothing, the Great Reset is going to run over us like a steamroller on a hot pavement that's just been laid down by a truck. Oh, Patrick, thank you for one of the most important podcasts I've ever done. And um, I hope everyone watching to this or listening to this will will feel impelled to take action. I think that the, we have reached an in inflection point in the history of Western civilization. And it's extraordinary, I think, that this, what started out as, a, as a, a weird cult in the 1930s could, in the space of a few decades, be threatening everything that we've achieved in our, in our civilization. All the prosperity, all the things that we're looking forward to for our children, our grandchildren, all will be rendered as nothing and ground to dust if we don't resist. Uh, so thank you, Patrick. And please, if anyone, anyone has enjoyed this podcast and would like to support me, uh, you can find me on Patreon or on Subscribestar. This enables me to, to do more podcasts and vidcasts like this. And I hope you'll agree that we, those of us who are speaking the truth about these things, we are beleaguered right now. We need support because there is a mighty edifice around the world bent on our destruction. Uh, thank you, Patrick. That was absolutely brilliant. And I, I hope you'll come on the podcast again sometime because I think this is going to be a... If, I don't know how long it's going to, going to last on the internet. It'll probably get taken off off YouTube and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do you get that, by the way? Do you get, um, have you had sort of people sort of trying to shut you down? Oh, yes, all the time. I've had this for 45 years, James. That's nothing new to me. We were censored back then, and I'm still getting censored. So, you know, I say, okay, you sissies today, not you, but, you know, you, you internet sissies today that get a little bit of censorship and think, oh, my whole life is destroyed. You ain't seen nothing. Yeah. I, you know, we need to just deal with it. And that's one reason I say we need to go to people directly now. We we're, we're, don't rely necessarily on the Facebooks of the world anymore. We need to go to people directly and have one-on-one one face to face conversation and reestablish those lines of communication where we can build human relationships again, not some kind of computer relationship. It's very important. I wish I wish President Trump could see this because I think that I think he will I think he will become president again. I, 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 I think that I mean maybe I'm being optimistic, but I think that the scale of that electoral fraud i think that the kind of the the i think it was the globalists in 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 one form or another i think they overreached themselves i think let's hope i mean joe Agreed. biden is part of the great reset isn't he totally he said so already he's used the exact language that klaus schwab invented on the world economic forum website so <clears throat> they're all they're all gung ho for the great reset right now, and it's just it's it's just kind of a matter of time in one way because even through the Trump administration, there's been all kinds of things that have continued to move ahead as far as technocracy is concerned. But um, 
It will be the people in the country, ultimately, <clears throat> and I know you could say this in Great, in Great Britain as well, whatever the problems the people have in Great Britain, you know it's not going to be your national government that saves you. You know that. And it's the same thing here. Our national government is not going to save us where we live. We live out here in a town, in a, you know, in a state, and as far removed from Washington, D.C., there's not going to be anybody coming out here from Washington with any policy that's going to straighten out our local affairs. We need to be the ones that take charge of our own local communities across the country. Take that back, and you will, by default, take the rest back. And that's what makes it so difficult for most people because they don't want to get off their couch and go out and actually do something in their own local community. We need to just defy these people that are giving this mask mandate garbage and this social distancing garbage. And I'm, <clears throat> I, I, I realize I'm stepping into the area of civil disobedience, but it's come to that, James. This thing is a fraud. It's a scam that's been perpetrated to trick us into the Great Reset. It has nothing to do with the disease anymore. It never did. Mm. No more than global mm. warming had anything to do with the planet, the planet's temperature. That was just mm. the fear-mongering technique that was used to drive us into sustainable development. Same race, different horse. And we need to just say, you know what? We ain't going to play ball. In America, I'm telling people, do not comply. Just make your mind up. Yeah. Say I will not comply, and then don't comply. Don't wear the face mask. Forget social distancing. And if somebody throws you out of the store, don't go back for Pete's sake. You can buy some somewhere else. But, you know, you got to stand up, take a stand, and say, I will not play the role that they have assigned me to play. This is the idea yeah. to spread. <laughs> I just will not, I will not play the role that they have assigned me to play. And I think you could probably say the same thing in any country you go to today. This is what the citizens of that country need to hear. Yeah, great. Well, um, thank you, Patrick. I urge people to read read one of your books, at least, Technocracy Rising, Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order. Uh, can they see your, um, have you got sort of a website? Yes, uh, technocracy.news is where people need to go to see all my stuff on technocracy, my current stuff. But <clears throat> um, I would uh, mention that all of my books are available on amazon.com. I know there's an iteration of that in Great Britain. And you might want <clears throat> to, if, if people over there or in Europe hear this, um, uh, don't buy it from me. The postage is just crazy. Uh, to get something overseas these days, and it takes weeks to get there. We get constant trouble with that. But um, Australia has uh, .au and, and the United K Kingdom, I think it's .uk, and there's, Europe is .eu. Uh, there's an audiobook for my latest book. There's Kindle versions, and my original Trilatos over Washington, I've republished that, and that's available on Amazon as well. So depending on how much you want to get educated and up to speed on it, they're all there and you can get them. Right. And you can also get them off my website. Uh, that's great. Uh, Patrick, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and um, good, best of luck. We need, we need it. I'll tell you what, I, I just got to say this. I, you know, we've got all, we have our problems here. You have your problems there. I realize it. You know, we're yeah. both up to our eyeballs and alligators, right? 
<clears throat> but I just want to say this. Uh, we need each other in this battle. It may not be apparent initially because you're way far away from me, but people like us, we so desperately need each other for this battle that's coming to us that we didn't call for. We didn't ask for this. Yeah, we didn't. But the freedom-minded, liberty-minded people that don't want to see their cultures destroyed they need each other now more than ever in history to, to get mutual encouragement, mutual understanding, uh, you know, building up, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we need to see each other around the world. We're facing the same problem. It's a global problem. And we need people like us in every country in this planet right now to stand up and say, nope, not going to fly, guys. We see your plan. It's crackpot. You're not going to do it. You're not going to destroy the world for the sake of some nutcakes idea from some academic ivory tower somewhere. Not going to work yeah. that way. So I hope we can achieve that. And I'm, I'm thankful that you're over there doing what you're doing. And and uh, I know there's other people that are, you know, uh, helping along and along the same lines over there. It's great. And I just say, incidentally, that <clears throat> almost some days, um, almost 30 to 40 percent of our website traffic um, on technocracy.news comes from the UK. <laughs> I never intended that. It's just the way it happened. That's good. That's good to hear. I'm, I'm glad that my people are, are, are playing their part. Good. Thanks again, Patrick. I'll, I'll say goodbye now. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.